This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Michelle Arrow. She's an Associate Professor in Modern History at Macquarie University. Michelle joined me to talk about her new book, The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia. We particularly discussed the women's liberation movement and the fight for gay and lesbian rights. The book is out through New South Books. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. I'm very pleased to have with me on the phone from Macquarie University, Associate Professor Michelle Arrow, and she's written a book called The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia. And uh, it is a really excellent book. And uh, Michelle is a historian, so she brings a historian's wonder and rigour to this subject. And I welcome Michelle now. Hi there. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great to have you on the show. And um, I was really delighted to come across this book and also more delighted to see that you had a significant focus on women in the 1970s. And as we heard from that very brief clip before with Jermaine Greer, in the 1970s, it's such an important moment for relationships and women in particular and the way that they see themselves and their role in society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really at the heart of this sort of story of the way that personal uh, issues become placed on the political agenda is the women's liberation movement, of course. That's really at the heart of this story. And kind of one of the things I wanted to trace was to kind of weave in the the story of women's liberation with the broader national story of Australia Mm. in the 1970s and kind of look at it in the context of national politics. You know, kind of how did women's liberation go from being a movement that was... You know, a small small groups of women in different parts of Australia into something that became really sitting, you know, influencing government and influencing policy by the mid to late 1970s. Yeah, and it's very refreshing to see women's liberation and women's quote-unquote issues being made part of the mainstream because often the way it's treated in politics and history is that it's kind of separated out as a chapter or, you know, a, a special women's subject or topic. Exactly. And really, when you look at the history of particularly the Whitlam movement, say, which is one of the main, of course, you know, the the, the big political moment of this period is women is just sort of sat off to one side in one chapter. And maybe there's a paragraph on gay and lesbian rights in there, too. Mm. And what I wanted to do is kind of upend it and say, what happens if we look at the story of the 1970s through the prism of gender and sexuality? Like, how does our view of that decade change if we do it that way? Yes, well, it definitely changes, but it seems like it's far more realistic and comprehensive rather than being quite dry and economic and masculine. Yeah, I was really keen to try and bring in the stories of ordinary people's response to these transformations. You know, that there is Jermaine Greer is in the book and Dennis Altman is in the book and, you know, there are a number of high-profile women there and people who are part of activist movements. But what I wanted to also do is kind of say, well, what's the impact of the Whitlam government on a person who was, you know, um, living in suburbs in Sydney and how did that, you know, kind of change their lives and the sort of looking at politics in a very holistic way, I suppose, Mm. Um, and sort of getting our idea of of what happens in the 70s away from strictly an economic or a sort of political disaster story, which is the way (laughs) we think about Whitlam and the dismissal, to kind of say, actually, if we look at it in this different way, the picture is transformed. 
Yes, it is, yeah. We do tend to fixate on the constitutional crisis and the involvement of our Governor-General rather than, you know, what was really happening for people. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I mean, you know, I also in the book I have a, a moment where, you know, Whitlam's Women's Affairs Advisor actually warned Whitlam before the dismissal. She's like, he's going to sack you. <laughs> she kind of had a personal relationship with John Kerr. But wow. he, Whitlam was like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So, again, one of those things, the ways that gender sort of plays out as she says if I'd been a man and a political staffer maybe he would have listened to me mm. you know and maybe he would have taken me more seriously so you know again not just the sort of what was life like on the ground but actually that the ways people thought about gender reshaped the way that politics you know the way the dismissal sort of might have played out it's amazing really isn't it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is really, it was a really great little detail it was like oh okay that's yeah. interesting so one of the elements of your research for this book, which um, is really interesting and I thought maybe we should highlight that at the mm. outset, is the fact that you spent probably many months digging through archives, but particularly the National Archives, and of course they are located across Australia, so they have different yeah. offices. But you, you weren't in the Canberra one, you were in one based in New South Wales, and there was this great set of documents and it must have been huge I'm guessing around a royal commission that had been established by the Whitlam Labor government Uh, it's called the Royal Commission on Human Relationships I didn't realize we had that as a royal commission how did you even stumble across that fact yourself look it was it's one of those things that people forget that it happened and people don't you know, there was so much going on in the Whitlam period that I think people just, what Royal Commission and Human Relationships? That's a small subject, you know, just mm. add that to the pile of things that they, were go, that they were doing. So I read about the Royal Commission in a sort of a few paragraphs in a big general history of Australia. And I was like, gee, that's interesting. Has anyone written about that? And I found that not really anybody had done anything on it, apart, part, part, partly because the um, archives are, you know, the, the archives, the National Archives are closed for 30 years after the material's created. So I was sort of investigating it at the very moment where the material could be read by researchers, you know, the 30-year period had passed. And so um, what I did was spend months in the National Archives in the Sydney branch, and one of the things that this Royal Commission did, it was this inquiry into what they, you know, human relationships in medical, social, sexual, family aspects of human relationships. Initially, it started as an inquiry into abortion. Um, there was an attempt to pass law reform on abortion that, that failed. And in that debate, they kind of couldn't work out even basic things like how many abortions were happening in Australia every year. And so they thought, let's have an inquiry that can answer that question as long as, you know, alongside a whole lot of other questions. And so the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was the result. It had two female commissioners and one male, um, a journalist, a judge and an um, Anglican priest. Um, and for months, they travelled around the country, they accepted submissions from members of the general public as well as from activist groups and social, you know, organisations about those questions. You know, they had um, posters in around the place that you could see that said, what do you think? Tell us what you think about all these different aspects of human relationships and write to us. And people did. They turned up to open hearings and they gave some, you know, testimony in public. They wrote submissions to the Royal Commission. Uh, They um, turned up to open house hearings where you could just turn up and tell a brief story, you know, about yourself. You didn't necessarily have to make a whole submission. They were very keen to hear from lots of different people. And all of those submissions, all the written, you know, the typed submissions from members of the public are 
were kept and boxed away at the end of the inquiry and put in the National Archives. And so I think I was probably the first historian to look at all of them. Mm. read everything from beginning to end and they're organized by topic so you can open up here's the file of abortion submissions here's the pile of submissions on divorce or whatever so what was intriguing and and sort of appealing to me as a historian was that you could kind of use those to get at what ordinary people were thinking about the social change of the 1970s and that seemed to me to be a great gift you know as a historian a great kind of amazing thing that you could find and so that's really the spine of the book is kind of all the research that I did in those submissions and looking at the ways that say women were writing about how they felt about motherhood how gay men and lesbians felt about being gay in a society that was still remarkably homophobic um people who were talking about antenatal education sex education people who wrote about divorce people about loneliness like there's it's kind of amazing how much stuff is in there and how many things, different ways you could approach it. But it seemed to me that if we're thinking about the 1970s as the decade when the personal became political, and of course that's one of the slogans of the women's movement, that this was a way of thinking about that in a slightly different way, in a way that people who were not always part of organised social movements were responding to this idea that the personal was political. Because they were saying, I'm writing to you not just to tell you that I'm miserable or that I'm happy or whatever but that I'm putting that on the political agenda I want you to know about it so you can do something about it Mm. and that to me seems like something new that's happening in the 1970s that there's a range of social issues that people are responding to and that government is more receptive to hearing about it too which I think is an important part of the story you talk about it being the spine of the book it obviously is a big feature and Mm. um, you go into a lot of detail and I love the different details about it and how it was seen at the time and also how it was referenced at the time Mm. like it was initially reported as an inquiry into sex or family life and as you say its nickname in activist circles was the fucking commission (laughs) Um, you said even Whitlam called it the Sex Commission. How much of a, yeah. an open discussion was there about relations and particularly sexual relations? Mm. Quite a bit, I think. I mean, you know, one of the, as I said, it, it started as an inquiry into abortion. And so that obviously, you know, has a quite clear relationship to sex. They were really keen on thinking about sex education and alleviating ignorance. You know, education was really framed as the thing that could fix everything. And so there's quite a lot of discussion around sex in relation to sex education. There's also quite a bit of discussion of sex in relation to violence, actually. So Mm. domestic violence, rape and sexual violence. Um, You know, a lot of people are writing about how they didn't understand what sex was, um, how they had their experiences of sex had been violent and unpleasant in a lot of ways too. Um, There's also discussion around age of consent um, and prostitution and those kinds of things. So it's really kind of considering a number of ways that the law and morality and social mores kind of dealt with sex and managed sex. And, And the 1970s is obviously a period where a lot of those mores are being challenged and undone. Um, I think one of the interesting cases is the way that gay and lesbians approach the Royal Commission because initially I don't think the Royal Commission has anticipated that gay and lesbian people would present submissions but gay and lesbian activists were really clever and kind of went we're going to ta- you know, target this Royal Commission, we're going to make submissions and we're going to put that issue on the political agenda through the Royal Commission. So it's a really broad-ranging sort of sense of what sex was, but it's also one of the reasons that the Royal Commission 
when its report is released, it makes 500 recommendations. Mm. Very big, <laughs> sweeping kind of set of reforms. One of those was around decriminalisation of homosexuality. They recommend um, an equal age of consent. There's a whole bunch of things in relation to sex, and that's the thing that sparks real furor amongst political conservatives around moral, you know, religious and morals groups. So, again, it becomes sort of seen as this sex report you know, when it's released, even though actually that's not all of what it's about. There's actually a lot of things there that really don't necessarily have anything explicitly to do with sex. They're actually about the ways that people relate to each other, and sex is obviously one of those, but it's not everything. Um, so my sort of sense of it is that this is a Royal Commission that is about investigating the ways that morality had changed and perhaps the law hadn't kept up with the ways that people were really living. You know, morals had changed and, and the ways that people thought about sex and relationships had changed. And there's a backlash against the idea that we could perhaps re review the law, we could perhaps rethink the way that we think about some of these practices. Mm. Um, you know, the reaction against the Royal Commission is, it really is uh, conservative and hysterical in some ways. It's a moral panic around the, the Royal Commission and its findings. Yes, and you highlight throughout the book some of the civil rights and civil society organisations mm -hmm. who were campaigning to change the laws in regards to homosexuality. Um, and you, I found this interesting that you highlight the fact that they weren't necessarily gay and lesbian rights activists. Yeah. They were really approaching this from a legal standpoint of we yes. can't have morals in our laws like it you know yes. that that excessive government interference and moralizing over our citizens is not appropriate and so um, they didn't necessarily even see themselves as advocating on behalf of or for that particular group no that's right i mean one of the things is the famous kind of um a formulation that comes out of law reformers in the US and, and Canada and, and the UK is the sort of um, the state has no role in your bedroom, you know, the idea that, that, that the private sphere is a private place and civil rights campaigners in the sort of late 60s, they're not presenting themselves as gay in public they're like, we're not gay, we just think people deserve the right to be gay in private, but there's no sort of sense that um, being gay could be a public identity, that mm. being gay could be part of your individual identity, that being gay is something you do in private. And similarly with abortion campaigning in the 1960s, that some of the campaigns around abortion are sort of civil rights oriented. They're fronted by doctors. They're not fronted by women. So in both of those cases, as a sort of 60s reform, the groups that are affected most directly by the law are not the ones who are at the front of the campaigns to change the law. Um, and, you know, they're there, of course, but they're not at the front. Whereas by the 1970s, the early 1970s even, you have the people that are most directly affected by these changes who want to be at the front, you know, who are at the front of these campaigns. Um, Campaign Against Moral Persecution, which is a gay organisation, gay liberation, of course, women's liberation. And they're using that strategy of, this is how this affects me. The personal is political because, you know, I can't be the way I want to be in private or public because you're oppressing my identity. So it's a really big change in the way that gay and lesbian groups are sort of seeing their relationship to the state and to privacy, really. You know, they're kind of saying, look, that private identity means nothing if I can't express it publicly. Mm. And similarly, when you just mentioned their abortion, um, mm. it wasn't at that 
particular point, women's rights groups saying, you know, it should be women's right to choose. And that wasn't the forefront of that part of the argument. It was, as you said, doctors saying, well, you know, it's a last resort. You have to be pretty desperate to need to seek an abortion or want one. Um, It is pretty shocking, really, that that's how that whole argument started out when people are arguing for abortions or the right to have an abortion. I know. It's really interesting to me that moment that it's it's basically in the late 60s, those campaigns that produced the the kind of clarification of the the legal position of of abortion were all about could doctors avoid prosecution it wasn't sort of about the woman's right to have an abortion it was very much about um medicalizing that and sort of sitting that underneath the the kind of control of doctors Mm. um and in some ways that doesn't change hugely over the it's sort of the Menahit ruling and the Levine ruling kind of clarify the circumstances under which doctors can perform an abortion. Um, but it still isn't necessarily enshrined, as it is in the US with Roe v. Wade, as a right, a women's right to have an abortion. Yeah. And that's where it's interesting that some of these very recent decriminalisation campaigns, you know, in Queensland around abortion in South Australia at the moment, are so important because in some ways it's the unfinished business of the 1970s around, you know, access to abortion, I think. Yes, well, we move into the early 1970s and there are developments in uh, culture and particularly popular culture that you highlight, such as uh, magazines like Clio and Forum, which begin in 1972 and 1973. That's obviously also relevant now because we see Ita Buttrose is now the chair of the ABC, who was the editor of Clio. Um, But I was really kind of interested in the different approaches they took to uh, feminism or women's liberation as it was called and how I guess Cleo was saying we don't really want to tell you what to do or live your life or what kind of feminism is right or wrong which was also probably a smart move yeah (laughs) given the disparate groups yeah Well, I was interested in the fact that you highlight that there are so many different women's liberation groups and, you know, they had different functions and different approaches to the way they advocated. And so there were groups that were quite um, radical and then there were other groups like the women's electoral lobby that were quite pragmatic and focused in their attention. Um, And I was, you know, I actually know Eve Marlab, I didn't even realise. Yeah, she was a founder of it. Um, she's yeah. a very impressive lady. Um, but yeah, I, could you tell us a bit about the women's electoral lobby? Because that yeah. does move into politics. That's right. I mean, one of the things that happens in, in you know, it's in relation to the 1972 election, I think, is by 72 people can sniff that there's change in the wind. And I think women were very keen, inspired partly by an American example, to get their issues on the political agenda in a new way. You know, I think women had been regarded for a long time in Australian history as just, well, they'll vote the way their husbands vote, you know, not not as having a sort of distinct set of issues that might concern them. So the Women's Electoral Lobby uh, forms in early 1972, and their genius, their strategy, was that they got women in pairs to go out and interview all the candidates in their electorate on issues of concern to women. So they would kind of go and ask all the candidates, what do you think about access to abortion, contraception, should there be a luxury sales tax on the pill, all these questions. And, of course, the answers were very widely reported. Um, It got great publicity for the Women's Electoral Lobby 
as a cause, but it also trained these women on how to lobby, how to meet candidates, how to be political, you know, in that way. And so certainly Labor thought that the women's electoral lobby had helped them get elected, I think, in certain key seats. So it starts a process, I think, where Australian feminism is regarded sort of internationally for having a kind of pragmatic reformist character right from the very beginning. There's women's liberation, there's groups that don't want anything to do with the state. They're not interested in in working with the state. But the women's electoral lobby see an opportunity for women to achieve quite significant sort of policy shifts because they had this influence um, and because they were raising these issues and making those personal issues political issues in in 72. Um, So they continue, of course, to do all that work. And I think it also lays the foundation for Whitlam appointing a women's women's affairs advisor um, in his office. Uh, Elizabeth Reid, who gets the job, is the first women's advisor to a national political leader anywhere in the world when she's appointed in 1973. Partly that's, of course, because he has no female MPs in his first, um, you know, first government. So it's important, I think, to be responsive to women's needs in other ways. But it's interesting because it does kind of put women's political issues on the political agenda in a way that they hadn't really been there before. And it's interesting that a group has been formed just this year called Women Vote who are kind of saying they're doing the same thing. They want to kind of raise women's issues on the political agenda and it's like, well, actually, that's quite an old strategy, you know, that's been around for a very long time um, through the women's electoral lobby. So fascinating that it becomes a big news story in 1972 and, of course, some MPs score very well. Whitlam scores really you know, incredibly well. There was the story was that w- William McMahon, who was the prime minister at the time, gave the survey to his secretary hmm. to fill out. You know, so again, sort of not quite sniffing the wind and not quite working out that you know there was something new going on in politics. But yeah, it's a really interesting part of the story. I think it is interesting. The fact that so many um, candidates didn't even really have a formed position on many of these issues because yes. it had never come up as a political it had issue. Never occurred to them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, you know, most politicians now, I think, would probably at least pay lip service to the idea that they thought that those issues were important. And 72, lots of, of the candidates are just like, I don't know, I don't care, you know. <laughs> exactly. Really yeah. And, well, it, it highlights your point that you interspersed throughout this book, which is the fact that um, what was personal and was seen as largely a private matter for mm. individuals became political and part of government and government yeah. intervention. Yes, and governments are kind of forced to respond to a whole bunch of issues that really hadn't been front of mind before. And, you know, sort of the Royal Commission is a good dramatisation of that, but in some ways the Women's Electoral Lobby is another really good example of, like, oh, okay, there's all these things that we have to take into consideration that we haven't really thought about before. And the ways that something like the women's movement in that way manages to sort of reshape the way politics works in in sort of subtle ways, I think. So, you know, we ignore these issues around gender when we're thinking about broader political questions at our peril because they actually Mm. have some really interesting things to tell us. Yeah, Yeah, and when Gough Whitlam won that uh, election in 1972 and he was waiting for all the results to be tallied, you highlight the fact that he actually became quite impatient and secured approval for a two-man ministry with his deputy Lance Barnard. And so that was so that they could really hit the ground running, so to speak, and start making changes 
immediately and you highlight some of the changes that they make very quickly. Some non-gender related, such as giving diplomatic recognition to communist China and promising independence to Papua New Guinea, um, they ended national service, pardoned all draft defaulters, uh, which of course is relating to the Vietnam War, Mm. released imprisoned protesters, but they also lifted the sales tax from the contraceptive pill, reopened the equal pay case, which was before the Arbitration Commission. And what was really interesting I was fascinated by is that he briefed Mary Gordon, who was a barrister and later sat on the High Court to argue for equal pay for work of equal value. It's pretty impressive to just get straight onto it. Exactly. And it was a really important, I think it was about saying to people who had supported him, you know, I'm I'm doing things for you already. And I think the Labor Party had, it had taken the Labor Party a long time, I think, to shake off its sort of trade union, male dominated image. And, you know, that change is slowly happening in the 1960s as they're drawing in progressives and, you know, people of the new middle class and stuff like that. But 72, those two very early legislative reforms were a way of saying we recognise you Mm. and we are going to advocate for you and so that's really part of the sort of longer transformation of the ALP too which is so interesting that's sort of part of the story this book tells I think the way that the two parties work out how are they going to accommodate this politics of gender and sexuality. And so we kind of reach a bit of a... I'm going to have to bypass a lot of the Whitlam years because we're running out of time, but people can go back to the book and look into more detail. But in 1975, we know a big thing happens, which is the dismissal. But a lot of other things happened in that year that tend to have gotten missed or bypassed or even Mm. bypassed at the time by their own politicians because of all the drama that was happening and also that the economy had such a significant downturn Mm. like as you highlight there was it was it stagflation Yes. Yeah. So So, this idea of high unemployment and high inflation, nobody thought the two could happen at the same time, but of course it proved to be the case in 1974, which is a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, They were all relying on Keynesian rationality and logic to work. Yes. And of course, by 1974, it is not working. And that's, you know, that's really what, apart from the scandals, you know, there are lots of things Mm. going wrong with the Whitlam government by late 1974-75, but certainly the failure of that economic orthodoxy and the end of the long boom is sort of its curtains, really, for for the government at that point. Yes, and you highlight that there are some major developments like um, when they had the the next election in 1974, there was a major childcare policy that they had, which Elizabeth Reid played a massive role in that kind of got butchered and then gutted in terms of funding. So there were many issues with that, but also that the Royal Commission's recommendations and report kind of got glossed over. Mm. I was pretty disappointed to hear that given how much effort went in. I know. It's it's a pretty... I mean, it's the Royal Commission is one of the victims of the dismissal, really, because um, Fraser comes in and sort of has a razor gang and wants to cut lots of stuff, you know, 
rain, rain government spending in. So he cuts the Royal Commission short by 12 months, says it has to report a year earlier. So they're all still doing hearings, you know, around this time. And they, there's reports that they couldn't even pay their phone bill in February 1976, you know. And so it all becomes very uncertain what's going to happen. And so the Royal Commission is cut short and then it's reporting early. And then it kind of, when they release their final report, it ends up being leaked or parts of it get leaked. So it is used as a political weapon, really, mm. in 1977. So it's all a bit of a sad story and it's kind of part of the broader what i kind of would call sort of backlash politics in the late 1970s where you know the fraser government is trying to work out how do they come to terms with all this and in some ways they end up scapegoating you know unemployed people and single mums get hassled and and you know a lot of government services that had only just been funded in the sort of mid 1970s like women's refuges the funding future for those things is by no means certain in the late 1970s so one of the things that happens in the late 70s is a lot of the new stuff that happens that recognises this new politics around gender is sort of uncertain and in some cases it's wound back in the late 1970s early 80s Yes. So it's a bit of a bleak part of the story <laughs> towards the end of the decade, I think. Well, yeah, you can't unfortunately rewrite history in this case because it actually <laughs> happened. But, but it is a very engaging way to write about it um, and it's also, I think, very balanced. But one of the things that's so important at the moment is things like single mothers and obviously motherhood came up mm. a lot rightfully so um, and the single mother benefit was something which had a huge impact as did things like um, making tertiary education free for women yeah. um, and so we're seeing you know at the moment that this kind of like penalties for being a single mother in terms of our welfare system but Whitlam um, and the way that he approached single mothers was entirely different. Yes it was I mean the supporting mother's benefit was a really crucial initiative to allow women who were either pregnant and unmarried mothers to keep their children. You know, I mean, ad adoption and and the sort of um, forced relinquishment of, of babies is one of the things that, of course, and we know because of the apology to you know relinquishing mothers and and their children that that had enormous adverse social impacts. And so that was sort of designed, I think, to try and help mothers who were not supported by a husband to live with some dignity and independence and again living without a male breadwinner i think australian society had been so structured around the idea of the male breadwinner and women well you didn't need to give them equal pay because they're living with a husband anyway and so you know it just assumed female dependence and the supporting mother's benefit is part of sort of saying women don't necessarily have to be dependent on a man but the state can step in and, and do that if, if they you know need it um and the other part of your question oh was the sorry there was a supporting mother's benefit and uh tertiary education for women um, right, boosting yeah women's engagement in yes. the workforce and other things exactly and one that was really one of the big uh if we think about you know i think in some ways the the history of that making tertiary education free was thought to benefit the working class and I think probably the analysis suggests that who it really benefited were women more than say working class people more broadly was that actually it was mothers and women more broadly who really benefited from that opening them up, up of tertiary education. You see lots of mums with kids going into higher education and you know going back to study after having children and I think it had a very significant long-term um, impact on Australia and as you say it opened up careers to women that may not have been possible beforehand. 
Absolutely. And it also meant mm. that, you know, you highlight the fact that mature age women, you know, who had yes. children were mothers actually then decided to go back and study and, yeah. you know, do amazing things. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there's interesting stuff around they were forming childcare collectives on campus and, you know, bringing new kinds of politics. And that's when women's studies at university really flourishes because it's partly around all these women going back into university and kind of rediscovering the world, you know, through feminism. Yeah. Michelle, I wish I could talk to you for hours because I just (laughs) am loving it. Obviously, you have a great subject to work with, but you've also put it together in such a way that it makes it just so fascinating and very much a joy to read. Oh, good. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. Yeah, no, I absolutely mean it. Thank you very much, Michelle, uh, for joining me and congratulations. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I've been speaking with Michelle Arrow. She's an Associate Professor in Modern History at Macquarie University and she's written a book called The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia and it's out through New South Books and it is, as I said, a really engaging read.